Hello, welcome back to the Women of Rock Oral History Project podcast, season two, episode four, part two, with Melanie. Got a solid hour and a half of stories, so let's get to it. I know. Uh, I, wanted oh, no, to, I, I wanted to go back for a minute, though, because um, I want to know how you personally, um, how you identify politically, and then how do your politics kind of fit into your music? Because it seems like, I mean, even just your experience with the music industry, that you still exist as kind of an outsider, um, you know, still that same kind of loner kid <laughs> who wants <laughs> to do your own thing and doesn't really want to compromise. Um, right. And coming up in the in the 60s with the, you know, the hippie movement and the counterculture and the anti-war movements. Um, and then, you know, just thinking about Woodstock. But I guess first, you know, do you identify personally as a political performer or just a musician and politics just as part of that? Oh, God. Yeah. My feeling about politics is I do not talk about it because. First of all, I'm not. I I think it's it's polarized to the point of ridiculousness. Um, and you know, if you don't want the vaccine, it means you're a Trump supporter or something. You know, I don't think so. You know, there's things about that vaccine I'm not so sure. You know, uh, and all the, the the details that have come out about. And but I'm not going to talk about that because you know if you. Look, if you want to take a vaccine, I guess yeah. it's your right to do that. But do know that there's billions being spent making you want to take that vaccine. Mm-hmm. You have to know that. Yep. I mean, billions being spent to make you want to take that vaccine. Mm-hmm. Just the same kind of billions making you want to buy that hideous record that you had to have heard it 90,000 times before you like it. You know? yeah. yeah, I like it. It has a nice beat. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah. Um, it, you don't really like it. <laughs> You've been programmed. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, it's unbelievable. Uh, actually, somebody wrote, uh, did a, uh, a YouTube. It was, um, I forgot his name, British guy. Why pop music is, modern music is so bad or something like that. Oh. Oh, you've got to see it. It's really brilliant. And he analyzes, you know, what was nice about music and what's not so nice right now. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah, I mean, it. it uh, I, I, I will talk about the mediocrity of what's being promoted musically, but um, as far as politics, I'm a humanist. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, things that divide people, I'm highly skeptical of. If it starts feeling like it's divisive, then I just, I ridge. My whole body ridges. I can't help it. I'm an instinctive person. I've always known who is bad (laughs) and who is good. I just have that instinct, you know, and I mean, I like authentic and real. And what's... I don't know. There's so much phony stuff out there. I, I, I can't even look at television. Yeah. 
I mean, I really can't. I can't look at mainstream television uh, or even movies recently. I, I used to love going to the movies. You I know? was just thinking about that the other day because I, I like to keep up with, I love movies and I watch a lot of documentaries. But all of, even the movies that were up for Academy Awards this year, uh, is it just me? Or are it worse? I know, you know, it's just, I, I, I mean, it's not entertainment. It's, to me, it's, it's, it's kind of a weird programming that's so obvious, you know, there's so much agenda in, in things. I, I just, I just think people would be better off right now if they shut off their television and just kind of get in touch. I mean, it's a good time. We're all home, you know. Yeah, you know, find out who you are. You know, how about that? Um, somebody once asked me, kind of, uh, he, I think he, I don't know, he might have thought something that I wasn't fair, you know, but he might have thought something. And he said, Well, don't you feel like, because I said I'm not really political, he said, Don't you feel like politics shapes who you are? And I, I was startled by a comment like that because isn't it really the opposite? Isn't who you? I mean, it it's, it would be much more accurate to me, but it, I mean, neither one is accurate, but it, it was startling that he said that. And I, from that time on, I said, you know, it's really, people have enough shit shoved in their face. I certainly don't have to add to it. Yeah. You know, there's enough. There's way enough. I'm a musician. I really think music will save the world. Music and art. Mm -hmm. As long as it's, you know, coming from a, an in, internal place in an artist and not from a place where I want to make the next hit record. <laughs> you know, I want to be famous. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. I mean, we're in this thing where everybody is posting themselves they're looking at themselves they're constantly i i was in a place the other day and i'm there's a girl and she's like holding her camera her, you know thing and she's like making faces and and she was in a fast food restaurant <laughs> i mean what are you what are you doing <laughs> Everybody's producing themselves. You know when you're like embarrassed for another person? Like, yeah. That's what I feel when I see people. I know, I know. And they're doing their phony smiles and yeah. aren't I having fun? Look where I am. I'm at Culver's. <laughs> and and it was like, uh, I don't know. You know, I think we're, we, my generation just skirted the generation who watched themselves. And when you watch themselves, how do you, and how do you, how are you ever in the moment? Mm -hmm. You're, you're producing the, the documentary, you're producing a film that you're stylizing who you hang out with. Your, your friends aren't really your friends. They're just like one of everything that's politically correct. Um, you know, it's stylizing that I, I, you know, you see people being, fake and phony and disingenuine and and they don't know what it is to like hole up in your room with a record mm -hmm. it's all alone you're all alone and you 
you, um, you know, you're there and you're um, in the moment of listening. And it doesn't have anything to do with whether any of your friends think that's good, or whether anybody, but it really indicates to you. Mm-hmm. And and I, I feel bad that people don't have that. Yeah. yeah that, that, that genuine, it moves you in your heart, you know, in your soul. It means something bigger than any kind of fame or fortune or celebrity. And everybody wants to be a rock star, you know, or something. And they want to be, and and I don't say that's bad, but, you know, do it. Learn how to play something. (laughs) You know, sing, learn how to sing. Maybe that would be something. But um, just the way you look and, I mean, look at all the people in the past you would never have heard of if the same standards were applied You'd never have heard of Aretha Franklin. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine Aretha being on one of those, the voice or something. It wouldn't happen. You know, they say, yeah, I'll lose about 200 pounds. You'll be great. You know, um, if some, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have, some of the people, I mean, uh, I look at some of the, the faces of pop people long you know who they just wouldn't have made it i wouldn't have made it i i'm amazed that i got as far as i did because someone early on knew that i was a loose cannon <laughs> you know and i i am i always said i got away with obscurity because at one point it felt like they were dropping like flies yeah and um you know, I don't want to get dark and gloomy, but that's. Um, well, I mean, I, that was part of my because, like, I do want to talk about. Um, just you mentioned sort of before we officially started the interview, the memory of Woodstock '69 versus actually being there, but also just that whole generation where you had this sort of um, kind of like a revolution happening. Um, and then how many people, you know, at the same time you had this rampant, um, you know, drug culture and a lot of those people are not with us anymore. So right. You're one of these survivors, but just, if you could talk about Woodstock 69, your experience playing it, seminal moment in history. Um, and then just how did you not fall prey to that lifestyle? Like, how are you? Yeah. I get. I was very. I was an introvert. You know, really, I wasn't a person who enjoyed uh, being seen or spotted. I mean, it would it would terrify me. You know, if somebody recognized me on the street. You know, it would just. It was not what my motivation was. My motivation was music, and I was so driven to do and to let people hear my music that I bypassed the part of me that was terrified. Um, I was, uh, when I did Woodstock, I, I was in England during the whole preparation and the whole, my, do you believe this? One of my eyeglass glasses fell out. <laughs> I can only see out of one eye, which is very <laughs> distracting. 
Um, of course, I could just take them off totally. And how did that happen? I can't believe that. I mean, okay. Um, so there I am. Okay. Um, yeah, I was um, not a, really not a, not celebrity material. You know, that wasn't, I didn't want to be seen. <laughs> I wanted to be heard and as much as possible be invisible. Um, when I went on stage, I covered myself from neck to floor <laughs> to the point where people thought I had polio. <laughs> said, I thought that was said, fashion you must, you must have something wrong with her legs. <laughs> she, she's never shows her legs. So no, I just, I didn't want to be looked at as first of all, woman at all. I hated that. You know, it was like, especially then it was, um, it was a guy thing. It was, uh, you know, it was all men. It really was. And and girls were there, but they were the lead singers. They were chick singers and with the male group, you know, they, they didn't, weren't alone. You know, Joan Baez was my hero because she was alone, you know, Joan Baez, she was my hero. But, um, uh, there was really, that was not common to have that. Um, my take on being at Woodstock and what has been retold, again, you know, history gets told by the winners. <laughs> it was not a political group at all. Was not political. It was very much about humanity. It was very much about uh, changing the world with your actions, you know, with what you do, not about who you voted for. In fact, it was very, it was so not political. The only political part was being anti-war. And that's always a good idea. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's never a good idea to go to war. Never, never, never. Unless you're protecting your borders. I, yeah, you know, that would be the only real reason if you were being attacked, then you have to do something to not be attacked. But um, for hopefully, you know, there'd be many, many steps that you could take before that would happen. But maybe not. I don't know. But the um, I'm, I'm definitely not a, a let's go to war person. <laughs> never, I never have been, and I uh, never will. And yet, I I sang at. West Point during the biggest time of anti-war, you know, and it was, it was an odd thing. They asked me if I would sing at the West Point Cadet Center where they were, you know, having a something or other. And I, why not? You know, why not? So I, I sang Peace Will Come and I sang, you know, my songs of hope and uh, humanity and, I got a standing ovation. You know, I, I actually thought they're probably going to boo me halfway through or something. Because, you know, again, if you were at Woodstock, it meant that you were something. As time went on, not at the, at the moment, but as time went on, it, it just meant most people would just assume, you know, a lot of things about my politics. They would just assume because I was at Woodstock. Yeah. which is insanely not free thinking. 
Um, it was a time of free thinking. You know, you could be very right on one side and very left on another issue, you know, and that that's healthy. But to clump all these issues together as one thing, like a vaccine has nothing to do with politics, but it, it's been made to be, you know, and I just there's so many things that are touted as political that have nothing to do with politics, but it it polarizes people. And and then they can manipulate groups with group the group think, you know. And if if you have this odd opinion about something, I mean, people talked and debated in during the 60s. I mean, William F. Buckley could debate with Martin Luther King. And that would be totally okay, and nobody would hate anybody, you know, because it was intelligent opinions about different things you know whereas there's no there's no allowance for any any disagreement of any kind it all becomes clumped with right or left you know and it's nonsense because there there are certainly more we we think people are so creative you know (laughs) We're, we're insanely creative um we create unusual solutions to problems that are, you know, sometimes they're crazy, but, uh, you know, people just can't help it. They can't help but create. And um, again, sometimes it's an unusual uh, solution, but we can't help but create. And and artists, I, I, I mean, really and truly, that's art is so suffering because of of what's going on and having to have this uh, political agenda in there and and artists should be free artists need to be free we can't we can't be imprisoned like this um yeah comedians the same thing i mean seinfeld said he can't do he can't go out and and do stand up because he might say something that would, you know, be not taken right by somebody. And being funny is like I, I'm. I'm always saying something. Like I went and I said in one of my newsletters, "I'm, I'm going as a hippie Muslim because <laughs> I'm because I'm, I wear black a lot." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they all know you can't say that. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. you can't say that. I, of course, I can. <laughs> you know, I it comes from. Sorry, then it's cut out. bad. What? It's bad if you in, intend to hurt with her comment. But yeah. if your comment is just, it's just an off the cuff yeah. thing that you just flew out of your mouth. Obviously, you're not trying to hurt anybody, and it's not hurtful. Yeah. And your intention is not like I. I I'm above reproach. No matter what I say, I can't hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. I really can't. That is just not in me. And and again, that that could be argued. I'm sure, <laughs> but of course, I win because I'm right. Because <laughs> you're an Aquarius. 
Yes, <laughs> most definitely. No, I um, think uh, I, I agree with you. And I, th- I was talking to a friend about this the other day, just that with social media too, and how oh. people's opinions are snipped down to like 800 characters. There's just no room for nuance in conversations anymore. Everything's either black or white. You're either for something or against something. And there's just no room for anything in between, which I think yeah. is really unfortunate because I, especially for me, I'm like not a black and white thinker. <laughs> I change my mind all the time. <laughs> I know. And, and that's the other thing. I, 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 I told that person who was talking about politics and don't you think that shapes who you are? But I said, I, I changed my mind too much. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, you know, one day I find out something and that would be called conspiracy theory. And then um, I find out something else and that would be called left. <laughs> I find out something else that would be called right. You know, it's like I changed my mind way too much to be even thinking about being political. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, and that's. is that um, we have the ability to change our mind. Yes, which is and I think a that good that's thing. a really good thing for people to do, and it should be allowed. <laughs> we should be allowed to change our minds. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. I do want to know, uh, so while you were working and touring and performing, um, you performed internationally, obviously, but you're also, you're also married and you have three kids. Yes. Um, how the hell I asked everybody, cause I just don't understand. I'm a lesbian spinster and I can't even manage my own life and my two dogs. <laughs> how do you balance? What is the work life balance there? <laughs> yeah. You know, it was my, I always took the high road with music, you know, um, music to me is sacred. Good thing. What a, if I write a song and I feel like, Oh, it's got to get out there. No matter what it has to get out there, you know, um, whether, you know, that it's not a matter of, um, how much time I spent with my kids. Although I did take them on the road a lot, which was, hard it was very hard um but uh and I breastfed every one of them oh wow Uh, that was another hard thing I know especially when I first started because it was like you know women were definitely formula people you know it was my you know my mother was horrified when she thought it was going to do that she's like she she was a tang mother you know yeah. tang and yeah. Velveeta cheese you know it's a, it's the food of the astronauts you know whatever and um you know the thought of that's you know something that old peasant women did you know that why would you do such a thing? And I'm, I'm again, because I found out stuff and that's a good thing to do that because your kid gets all your immune uh, immunities and, 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 and it's healthy and people got to get away from the thought that it's um, not a good thing to do. And uh, at least for three months, you know, you should really breastfeed your baby but um eh, 
you know, people are funny, but my mother was raised in the age of the propaganda for science was big, you know, the food of the as tang was like, I remember jars of tang and that was orange juice, you know, why bother picking an orange and squeezing it or anything like that? You could just spoon it out and <laughs> in a water. You drink it down. You got your you got your vitamins. That's it. And um, and my mom was you know of that generation where everything was that science produced was really good. And my aunt Jeannie took thalidomide and had a polio baby. You know, I mean, but we were all you know, taught that doctors and science and uh, we weren't questioning, people weren't questioning. The doctor said, if the doctor said you did it, you know, and that's, that was that. And I mean, the horror of my poor Aunt Jeannie, I mean, she took care of that boy until he died. Um, he was a grown man at 30 35 and her whole life was that decision to make to you know oh yeah take this it'll be great I don't know what it was for I forgot thalidomide but there were a lot of thalidomide babies and um it was one of the first that I remembered wondering about the pharmaceutical industry in the first place you know but uh yeah, we were, uh, my, my mom was a science person. So, you know, modern, everything modern and scientific. And uh, so I don't know how I got into that. What were we talking about? Oh, about we uh, managing work-life balance once you- Oh, once work balance, yeah. So my mom was uh, also, you, you got married, you had children, that's what you did. Um, and- I was, you know, not from that. I was like, no, I don't think so. In fact, I didn't think I'd ever have children. I, well, like, what will I do with my cat? You know, I, I mean, I was terrified about my cat. My whole first pregnancy, I kept thinking, oh, my cat won't like it. You know, and going to do with my cat, and and then I heard stories. Of cat sucks the breath out of the baby and kills the baby with them. They suck the breath, and I. What am I going to do? What am I going to the cat? And as soon as I had the baby, I mean, okay, cat, you're on your own. <laughs> no, it just, it just was a whole other thing, you know, but um, yeah, my children were like my main, I want them to be happy. I want them to be healthy. I, I wouldn't let them have sugar. You know, I, I had them, they were vegetarians till forever. And um you know, little by little, you can't control everything, you know, uh, and they go to a birthday party and they have a big piece of sugary cake and they like it, you know, and they want another piece of sugar all night. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, you know, there's, it was just that, you know, leaving them at home and, and, you know, I had an, a nanny <laughs> and, uh, well, I I always said she was Mary Poppins gone wrong. You know, it's not um, it's exactly Mary Poppins. It was, um, and she was British, and I did kind of hope think that 
my children would have maybe a British accent, which I thought was adorable. And I would come home and they would say, oh, mommy, we're so happy to see you. We're so glad you're home. And But that's not what happened. <laughs> they didn't get a British accent. The nanny got an American accent and, um, you know, kids grow up with or without you. And I, I you know, I sometimes regret not having uh, spent more time with my girls because, again, I was, my focus was on the music and I had to do what I had to do. And in my head, it was for them as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't know. I, I don't regret what happened. I mean, the, they turned out great. I love, I love them. We're all very friendly and happy and nobody nobody hates me nobody's going to do a mommy dearest movie on me or anything and um but with Bo when he was born it was there was a little time that went by I I didn't I didn't let him out of my sight (laughs) I took him with me everywhere we were just we became like you know we're now we now make music together yeah but um, it, it was it was tough because there were times when I'd be in Europe and I couldn't get home for somebody's birthday or Thanksgiving or, you know, the meaningful things that, you know, we invent to keep family life going. And, and I'd be devastated a lot of times, you know. I, I wrote a song called um, uh, Some of My Dreams Came True. Uh, it's actually called extraordinary, but the the line is, but some of my dreams came true. And um, it was, I was, it was Thanksgiving and I'm in Nuremberg, you know, and everybody's home and I was directing how to make the stuffing, and how to do this um, and, and how to make lasagna because I was a two culture Grew, I grew up with both American and Italian mm. um, and, and Russian, Ukrainian. My father was Ukrainian, but um, mostly the cooking side was Italian. And we would have, uh, you know, every holiday was well represented. We had to have the turkey, of course, on Thanksgiving. And but then we also had to have lasagna and eggplant parmesan and um you know a big italian salad and stuffed mushrooms and all this you know things that you do on a feast day would be major italian cooking and the the turkey would come out after all that italian food and everybody would look as oh it's beautiful (laughs) Uh, and, you know, they would cut a slice and everybody would have a token slice of turkey yeah. and mashed potatoes and green bean casserole. <laughs> but it was pretty much you did it. Yeah. Um, before we get to the last few questions, I do want to go back because uh, we were also talking about um, absurdity and senses of humor as like survival tactics, very useful. Um, Uh But you mentioned, you said that you've had a lot of trials and tribulations in your life where 
your dark sense of humor or your appreciation for the absurd has helped you. Do you care to speak about that and what some of the trials and tribulations were? Well, because I'm, I have such an erratic career, um, it, it took its toll, you know, on uh, <laughs> everything, you know, you, you, you're at one point, you know, you're everybody's human campfire and then nobody wants to even look at you. You know, you're, you're at, at, at um, I, I was, uh, I had a number one record uh, months before the um, closing of neighborhood records. And I was talking to record labels mm -hmm. and I'd hear things like, well, we just signed uh, so-and-so sounds just like Janis Joplin, but she's 16. And, you know, and then it got to be like, they were signing embryos, you know, it was like, you couldn't be young enough. You had to, this guy, Johnny Lang, he's 12 and he plays like, um, BB King. And it was like, who cares? You know, I mean, he have who you are. I, I mean, but, but there was this feeling like you're finished, baby. You know, hey, baby, you're not 20 anymore, you know, and, and that that it, it even though, I, you know, in my head, I knew that was bullshit, but it affects you, you know, you and you also that it seriously has an effect on how you're you can't get your songs out. You know, it, at one point you you have all these songs and you want people to hear them and they're not going to hear them if you don't have the machine behind you to get them out there, you know? So, um, yeah, we were, we were, the independent part became more and more difficult. Mm -hmm. And, uh, after neighborhood, we never, uh, financially recovered totally. You know, it was, um, we had spent a lot of money on, different groups again you know when we were the kind of people who somebody needed a car and we got them one you know it wasn't like uh well let me write a contract for your publishing before you do that you know it wasn't like we weren't that that way you know so we did um you know crazy things um at, in realms of the business, you know, um, but that was just the way it was. And um, so that made life harder here and there. And again, my, I just wanted my kids to do well. You know, I just wanted them to do well. I wanted them to be happy. I wanted them to see me happy. And sometimes that was impossible. And um, that, that in itself is is a hardship you know you want your kids to think you're happy <laughs> i did i did anyway i didn't want them to see me uh sad like i didn't want them to go what's the matter mom you know what's the matter i didn't want that you know i wanted them to think their mom was a doing well happy person um i wanted to set that kind of example you know um and i you know my my Again, I, I was, uh, my mom, 
I lived her dream life, you know, and uh, that, that kind of resentment and that also play, played a, a part because, you know, I didn't know that like people would say things about what Peter did and then I'd find out that wasn't true, you know, no. or, you know, there's like a, a couple in music business is not easy to maintain. There are always people trying to drive a wedge in that. There were like throughout, there was this, lots of different people who were trying to drive a wedge through that. And they would say things and and I'd find out and, or they would say things to Peter, you know, about me. And then he'd find out that it wasn't true or, you, you know, stuff like that. It was, it, yeah, there was some ugly stuff, you know, that we had to get past. And that's what I guess I meant by trials and tribulations. Yeah. I mean, not real trials and tribulations. We weren't being hung by our toes or anything. No, you know? that's, that's a lot. But I mean, no, but it, it, it was a, a constant, you know, tug and pull. And then you'd have a hit. And then everything you do is wonderful. And everybody wants to be with you. And, you're, and that's the other thing. The first time I didn't realize that I didn't have all these friends that I thought I had, you know, I'm just finding that out is, is a major, wow. Yeah. You know, I thought that person really liked me. I thought we were friends, you know, it's a very, those are devastating. And especially I was relatively young for, for the amount of success that I had and, uh, not you're not expecting the barbs and the arrows to be coming from places that they come from sometimes, and finding that out those things, uh, the treachery and uh, actual people trying to get you, you know, get you down, you know, trying to, oh, you know, trying to pull you out of where you are. They don't want you there. You know, because then you have power and control. And they don't want you to have that. Yeah. Yeah, those are some trials and tribulations, Melanie. I would say. Well, I'm glad they don't come <laughs> out as trivial. <laughs> I don't want uh, to have trivial trials and tribulations. No, those are those are real. Like I couldn't figure out what color to put on my toenails. <laughs> <laughs> then I might have laughed a little. Yeah, right. But, yeah. Oh, poor baby. <laughs> Um, I also, okay. So I wanted to ask this question because, uh, I told my, I have a nine-year-old niece and a seven-year-old nephew. And so they visited last weekend and I said, oh, I'm interviewing Melanie, uh, Safka this week. I'm really excited. So then my brother-in-law wanted to show them who you were Googled and your uh -huh. Miley Cyrus collaboration came up. Yes. So my niece was automatically like, okay, Melanie is very cool. <laughs> She's Aww. nine. Um, but I wanted to ask what um, some of your, you've collaborated with a lot of people, but some of your most memorable musical collaborations. Um, I it, Yeah, I never really thought of it as a collaboration, but I guess it is in a way. And, uh, and I think... Um, I'm, I'm really the Edwin Hawkins singers was 
there was nothing like it. <laughs> I I just recorded with them and I sang other songs that they wrote. We never recorded another song, unfortunately. And um, I mean, the whole th way that that happened, they were, I mean, Edwin Hawkins himself had said that he couldn't possibly allow his choir to, they had just come off Oh Happy Day, which was a major number one record. And um, uh, he had, we were on the same label and my husband contacted him because I said, oh my God, it would be so amazing if the Edwin Hawkins singers could sing on the anthemic part of Candles in the Rain. Yeah. And so Peter contacted Edwin Hawkins and one day I was, you know, in the house and Peter was there and he was talking on the phone. Every once in a while, he would do this absolutely abhorrent thing. He would say, Melanie, Melanie, somebody wants to talk to you. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Who are they? What do they want? Why do I have to talk to somebody? And he <laughs> said, it's Edwin Hawkins and he really wants to talk to you. I went, Oh my God. I, I said, so do you, have you heard the song? Do you want to do it? That means I'd be, it'd be the best thing in the world. I could so hear this. And he said, wait, 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 wait. Uh, does, does the song have Jesus in it? I went, uh, no. Does it say the Lord? I went, uh, no. Not really. Uh, and he was quizzing me. He said, no, we only do songs. I don't want to disappoint you, but, I, you know, we only do songs in praise of God. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, well, you know, he's in there. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I'm not, I, I, I was awkward, you know, because I, I and I'm looking at Peter. I'm going to kill him because he <laughs> put me on the phone. Unknown. I didn't know what I was getting into. I assumed that. It was already a yes, yeah. you know, when I got on the phone and then I found out that he's quizzing me about the song and I mean, <laughs> oh, okay, well, I understand. It's all right because he's, I'm so sorry, you know, I'm sure it's a wonderful song and good luck with it. And it was basically no, you know, um, now Peter, I don't know if he planned it this way, but we were, we flew out to uh, Oakland where um, we were recording in a studio with Freddie Kutera, mm -hmm. who was the engineer for like Garf Art Garfunkel and si Simon and Garfunkel. And so like he had made a mega reputation for himself, Freddie Kutera, mm -hmm. and he was going to be the engineer. And we were recording some songs in that studio. And then Peter said, uh, Melanie, we have to go to see the Edwin Hawkins singers are re rehearsing down the street. I said, Peter, they said, no, you know, he said, no, it wasn't good. Cause he didn't have Jesus or God or anything. And he said, no, 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 you got it. You've got it. He wants to hear it. He really wants to hear it. So, <laughs> I mean, Peter was like the PT Barnum, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I was always like, I, I'd find out later, you know, about things. And so anyway, um, I, I went down with my guitar and, you know, I didn't ha even have it in a case, you know, it was strapped over my shoulder. And I, I, I'm, you know, going down there and uh, we, they were in a high school gymnasium mm -hmm. and we opened the door and they're in the middle of a, of a 
big choir part of something and everybody just like the door opens and they trail off their voices trail off and they're looking and I look at Peter and I say you didn't tell him did you you just did this didn't you <laughs> and he said come on come on and I said no I'm not I'm not going down there are you crazy and so Peter ran down the aisle and um Edwin Hawkins gets up and he's playing the piano he gets up and and Peter's gesticulating with his hands wildly. And Edwin Hawkins is shaking his head, no, and no, 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 no. And Peter's, you know, talking some more. And Peter signals me, coming down, coming down, you know. So I I walk down, all these people are looking at me, and I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> and so um Sure enough, he sing the song, he sing the song, he'll know, he'll know this is, and he's, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to everybody, I'm so sorry, <laughs> I'm really, really sorry, I didn't mean to, my husband is a bastard and I'll get him later, but, <laughs> um, so I started singing the song, and I, I really, you know, I put myself in it to the max, because there I am, in front of 46 huge black gospel singers you know and they're all looking at me like what's she doing you know and so um and I was singing my heart out I sang the the verses I sang the chorus by the time I got to my second chorus some of the voices started singing with me and little by little more and more of them started singing me lay down lay down and um Edwin Hawkins just like threw up his arms and said, okay. <laughs> so we we went to the studio. We we all went at that moment. We went to the studio. Um, now I don't know what incentives Peter, you know, presented or anything, but I do know we all went to Freddie Gutierrez's studio and we recorded that day. And um, the percussionist Reyes from uh, um, oh, what's God? What are they? You know, <laughs> uh, oh my God! The, the group, the the, 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 the the he had a, a hit with Clive Davis more recently, um, flamenco-ish Spanish style. I can't believe this. What is going on? Maybe I do have Alzheimer's. Oh my God. I mean, um, uh, I'm Googling it. In, uh, who, oh my God, this is embarrassing. Um, I, I actually performed with them at, uh, in San Francisco. Uh, it starts with a C. I can see a C. Uh, Flamenco? No, not flamenco. You know, Spanish, Spanish style. Um, I have a poster with us on it. How could I not know this? I will. I'll remember it five minutes after we hang up. But. Um, Anyway, they were oh, a big group. Carlos Santana. Santana! Oh, my God. Oh, that's it? Carlos. Oh, Santana, okay. <laughs> so, anyway, the conga player 
was in the studio with us and uh, it was it was wildly exciting with these big voices singing lay down with me and you know I'm, I was singing as big and as powerfully as I could and and it was just the the take went on and on and on and Peter did that universal signal of you know circling his finger keep going keep going you know and but he, we didn't have to be told it was just it just was spontaneous to the point where the record went on for um, over eight minutes and um, it, it was the take, you know, there was no getting around. We weren't going to do it again, you know, and it was, it was wild and inspirational and amazing. And that was the most amazing uh, studio, uh, I guess called collaboration that I ever did. Um, and, and, you know, of course it's, very exciting to record with, you know, Miley Cyrus or uh, Richard Thompson. It was very exciting to that. But um, well, I just like Miley. Like I never, I didn't know any of Miley Cyrus's music. I only know because my niece is nine. Um, but the more like doing all of these interviews and starting to write the book, she has covered so many of her predecessors and like performed with them that she's sort of the only current pop star who's like paying homage to people that came before. I mean, yeah. she recognizes that, um, you know, that there are women who came before her and she gives them credit where credit is due. So that's what I like. I know I that, know. that, that okay. is really, it really was an amazing thing. And she, she, uh, First thing she did was um, she did a backyard session, mm -hmm. a solo. And this was like prior to her getting naked. It was, um, yeah, she yeah. was going for granola oatmeal cookie lady. You know what I mean? Yeah. She had her hair in a bun and she was playing the guitar and she sang, look what they've done to my song. I was totally impressed with her voice. Yeah. And I, then before that, I hadn't known anything except Hannah Montana yeah. and um, my girls liked Hannah Montana, not my girls, my girls' children hmm. liked Hannah Montana. And, um, you know, I thought that was really sweet. And then I, I wrote her a private message on Facebook. I said, really love the way you sang my song. And she said, Oh my God, it's my life's life song. And um, we have to do something together. And I thought, oh, that would be great. You know, so, so I, you know, I don't know what I thought we could do together. But anyway, a little time went by and then she got naked and did Wrecking Ball. And that's all anybody was talking about is, oh, she's naked and she did Wrecking Ball. And it, um, I looked and I thought, huh, that's kind of weird because she, she did a flip flop big time, you know, from Granola Lady to, um, <laughs> now she's naked on a wrecking ball. <laughs> Again, you know, I don't have any remarks other than people have to do what they have to do. Um, I I know that she's surrounded by a, a lot of bad people, you know, and um, 
and she's trying to survive. And I know she doesn't want to be seen as a country bumpkin. You know, she, she doesn't want that on her. And, and, you know, when you're young, you really worry about her parents. (laughs) You worry about um, how you're being perceived. Yes. Very. It's, it's like, well, it's everything. It is survival. You're being perceived. I was uh, dismissed basically as anybody with any sort of relevance or social significance of any kind, even no matter what I wrote, no matter what I did, sing with a bunch of black people, you're still stupid Melanie, you know, <laughs> you're still the little bliss in any, I'm um, Rolling Stone wrote when, oh, it's a great song. They didn't say I wrote it. Mm-hmm. The great. And when the Edwin Hawkins singers are singing, the quiet sounds fabulous. But when Melanie's voice comes in, it's like a, a nail scratching against chalkboard. And I, and that killed me. It absolutely killed me. Uh, I mean, now I look at it and I should have said, fuck you, you know, but I didn't have that. I didn't have the F you in me yet. I was like, oh my God, maybe I am too loud. Maybe, maybe it does sound bad, you know? And I was totally going with the criticism, you know, thinking they're right, I'm wrong. You know, I did something wrong. I see your dog. Is that a dog in the back? That's one of them. Yeah, the other one's growling at me from the kitchen. <laughs> so, um, so we were, um, you know, so I, uh, you know, I was very devastated by all those kind of critiques. And I'm sure, you know, she did not want to be Hannah Montana anymore. You know, it was just uh, too adorable, cute. And if she wanted to take off her clothes and show people, I'm real, you know, and, and whatever people have to do. And I, 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 you know, I liked Wrecking Ball. I thought it was kind of odd that it was written by nine people. <laughs> when nine people oh, write a song, right. it's like, people. where did the song really originate? Yeah, yeah. And who really wrote it? But, you know. Um, the things like that happen and but I sense and I have I have no right really to judge anybody because to me you're out there you're a target you know you're a moving target and you do whatever but I I I feel like there's a real authentic Miley in there and I you know every once in a while she contacts me like I I got her to um I con I connected her and Michael Lang when they were going to do the 50th anniversary of Woodstock because I was doing it, you know. Um, I think he, you know, I have a whole feeling about why that didn't happen, but um, you know, she was happy we were going to do Woodstock, and um, then I contacted her later as it was progressing, and I realized that Michael had uh, three different stages. And I was going to be on the fucking heritage stage with a wheelchair ramp. You know what I mean? It was, I was, why, why are you doing that? I mean, Woodstock had one stage. It had one stage and Ravi Shankar was on it with Melanie and Shanana and all these different kinds of music. And there were, it was an eclectic, wonderful mix. Well, you know, people want to, see what's happening. I see all you're doing is you're making another Bonnaroo. 
Yeah. I mean, you're you're doing what everybody, uh, Coachella, they could go to Coachella. Why did they need to go to Woodstock? It's so far out. It's inconvenient. Why bother? You're doing the same usual suspects, you know? So why, why do that? And I gave him all these ideas for what to do, <laughs> but um, he didn't listen to me. But anyway, so I talked to Miley and uh, I, I was trying to get a hold of her to say, can we do a song on yours in your set? Like, you know, so I'm like there, not like on the heritage stage, you know? <laughs> um, which is, I should be grateful, you know. No, no. You know what I mean? It was so insulting. And, uh, and and you know, it min minimized who you are as yeah. a person. You're like, oh, this is the historic people over there. Country Joe is going to be over there. Yeah. Yeah, artifacts. Yeah. <laughs> the artifact stage. They still move and they still walk and talk and sing. And I, I just hated it. And so I, I called her and I didn't get a response. Mm -hmm. And basically um, the next time I heard from her was through her day handler. Uh, and they you know, they treat me very nice, you know, they very polite and nice and everything, but um, patronizing, you know, just a bit patronizing. And um, I, she, she said, Oh, I'm just giving you a heads up. Miley did a self-produced, um, like a selfie commercial for Gucci. And she used a brand new key and kind of with the attitude of, aren't you lucky? You know, um, I'm, I'm sure Miley got compensated for this, you know, and I didn't in any way, shape or form. And, and she actually knows my circumstance that I've been ripped off miserably by the record business powers that be people. And I don't collect my copyright. And that is a severe, uh, you know, loss uh, because well, you know, I don't have to tell you. That's how you could I could earn an income writing I just a song. Assumed that you got paid every time that song appears in a commercial. It should be. And no, no, I've definitely been. Um, I, I, you know, there's. Uh, it's uh, wild. I, I get, and I told you, I won my copyright yeah. back, and yet uh, some of these. Uh, compilations come out and it's still Buddha records. So I, I, I mean, I would need Paul McCartney's lawyer, you know, to do it. And that is the one bad thing about not um, being in the position that I'm supposed to be in, <laughs> you know, because they, they, you know, people they, could also just not be assholes. So you don't have yeah. to fight for every single little thing. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it's just sort of ethical to like pay someone. For I, I do believe that at some point there will be ethics put in, in the music business because it's such an honorable thing to be representing all these artists Yeah, that if things were right, all artists would be compensated for what they did. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
it just, uh, if they can get away with it, that's what they do. Yeah. They get away with it. And I'm, I'm in the position right now where I mean, they're, they're just hope Sony and BMG own everything. My performance rights, my publishing, my, I don't mind publishing. Okay. I remember selling publishing. That's okay. Because I owned my writer's rights, but somehow there was a, there's a piece of paper slipped into a contract. I saw it. Mm-hmm. It was it was like a Xerox copy of something that they put in that contract that gave them the right to my copyright. Oh. It's definitely it, it, I, I I saw it. It's it's before computers, you know. So it was um it was a Xerox copy of a little addendum that they that I signed, but it it allowed. But I mean, I could have signed a piece of paper and they put that in, you know, it's, it's not like, it's not like, you know, some people, they say, well, you know, if you needed money and you sold your cut, but I did, it was never like that. They, yeah. they actually stole, mm-hmm. they stole my copyright. So, you know, again, I have to, um, I'd like to make it right um, for me and my kids, you know, it's, um, you know, they lived the life, you know, and I really like to have them uh, be taken care of. Yeah. Now I'm going to cry. No, don't cry. I hate that. I just hate that. Sometimes, you know, you just say something and it triggers something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's really unfair, but hopefully you're still here you're still working and try to just remain hopeful maybe someone will someone who to get if i knew um, anything about anything i would help you but i know nothing about <laughs> i know nothing about that life <laughs> i you know what i don't either it's um it's very funny i'm going to tell you a quick uh analogy of no it's not even an analogy it's um when I was starting out, there was a DJ, and his name was Alan Freed, and he played um, the newest upcoming, you know, rock and roll on radio. And Alan Freed was convicted of payola, and that meant, you know, somebody would come in with a hundred dollars and say, "Play my record," you know, yeah. and. Uh, for whatever decision he made, he would or wouldn't. He would either take the money or not take the money. But it it wasn't something that everybody in the universe couldn't come up with. You know what I mean? Uh, you could, you know, four guys who work uh, a day shift somewhere come up with the money to pay Alan Freed. And if their record was good, he'd play it. Mm-hmm. To me, that's kind of an honest dishonesty, you know. Yeah. It's all right, you know. It's like it's not so horrible, you know, because anybody could do it. But yeah. now, you you have to know who to pay. Yes, and you don't pay them fifty dollars or a hundred dollars. You pay them three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. And that's for a, a week of heavy rotation. Mm. You know that it, it's, it's the amount of corruption now is unfathomable. Yeah. You really need to try to find this um, 
YouTube. It's uh, why modern music is so terrible. Bo? Oh, I wrote it down. Yeah. Oh, good. Yep. It's either that or why it's so bad or why it's so terrible or something. And he's a British guy and he goes to, I think it's pretty brilliant because he really analyzes how, how it went astray. Mm. Yep. No, I wrote it down. That's what oh, I'll be good, good. tonight with my dinner. Um, <laughs> I just have a couple more just general questions. I ask everyone these questions at the end. Okay. Uh, how do you feel about your role in or contribution to music history? Do you think about it at all? Well, now I do. I never really thought that I would be considered history. <laughs> you know, as I, I, I said, once, I waver between hysteric and historic, you know, <laughs> because I'm like, I'm that old, you know, like, how did that happen? I was, I was busy, you know, I didn't notice I, time went by and anyway, but um, I, I would just, I would like the music that I created to have a place where people felt something, you know, I'd like how people feel after listening to my songs. You know, whether they were the, the, I was all over the map too. You know, I mean, on the B side of Brand New Key, I insisted we had to have um, a song that I wrote called Some Say. Mm -hmm. And it's um, actually Morrissey's, one of his favorite songs. And it, it's this, it's a moody, you know, more poetic me than Brand New Key, you know. Brand new key was poppy and, but it, it it's adorable and I don't take anything away from it. It soundtracked so many people's lives in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. um, it's a song that you know I I'm proud of. I'm really proud of it. I wasn't when it first came out because again it it damned me to be cute for the rest of my life, you know, and that it wasn't what I was looking for um, at that point, but. You know, now if I if I release that now and it became a hit and people were damning me for it, I would just say, you know, F you. You know, <laughs> it's a great fucking song. <laughs> and you should be ashamed of yourself for trying to make it anything but what it is. Um and what are your thoughts on the visibility of women in music or rock music history in general? Is there a gender discrepancy? Is gender not an issue at all? Has it changed? Oh, yeah. I didn't even know. Again, you know, it was what the, that was what the canvas was. Mm -hmm. There weren't a lot of women in music, except again, the chick singer and the, you know, of the band who was cute and everybody wanted to, to marry her or something, you know, but um, it, it was, uh, it was very hard because guys were always trying to hit on you. I mean, that was what it was. It was like this constant, you know, and, and again, I was married and it was, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, you know, I didn't, I wasn't trying to pull in that, you know, I wasn't looking for a new boyfriend, you know, but that would be presented to me like all the time. And so I, 
you know, that, that in itself. And sometimes you, I didn't really realize it because when I was making music, I was genderless, you know, I'm just a person who makes music. Yeah. I happen to be a girl, you know, um, but I'm not a girl who happens to make music. Yeah. You know, it's the other way around. I, make music and I happen to be a girl that's and I would mostly I was around men guys roadies technicians they were they were all men and um there was this like balancing act you know like you, you don't want to make them mad you know because you get but I didn't really want to encourage it either um it was that was a a learning curve that <laughs> took about 25 years. You know? Oh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, again, there was written doctrine, play one woman hour. And I actually talked to a DJ the other day who said, yeah, I remember that. They only play one woman an hour. What does that do to the dynamic, you know, of women reacting to each other? I mean, it was this like almost viciousness, you know, because that's your survival. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you, it was, it, they pitted women against each other in this way. Mm -hmm. Right. There's only one an hour. Yeah. Well, who is it? <laughs> is it going to be you? <laughs> um, so there was a lot of that. Um, and again, I didn't get, so into it because again I was very conventionally married with children you know so it somehow didn't apply and um you know I remembered uh at one point I think it was already the 80s and I had uh Will Lee a bass player on my session was impertinent enough to say, ask me, so do you and Peter have an open marriage? And I, I looked, I said, yes, yeah, very open. If I fool around, he kills the guy. <laughs> it's, it's how open it is. You know? wow, but I didn't have the, that, that kind of a comeback early on. Again, it took me <laughs> a good 20, 25 years. You know? But, um, and then all of a sudden, every other girl was signed. <laughs> it was like, all these girls who now they play the ukulele, plays the ukulele, the girls with ukuleles. And I, you know, again, um, it, it's like, uh, it's not about how many women there are being played, it's about the music. You know, it really comes down to the music. And uh, I, somebody said, it was a couple of years ago, oh, Scandinavian women are the big thing. You know, they're signing all these Scandinavian women, Swedish girls and uh, Scandinavian women. <laughs> wow, you know, what an asshole backward business it is. <laughs> Insane. You know? Thankfully. <laughs> um. What are you most proud of personally and or professionally? Um, wow. I, I mean, 
I, I'm very, I'm so proud of Candles in the Rain. I know it keeps coming down to it. And that I was doing that during a time of, I mean, there was uh, protests about, you know, black and white and, and things. And I, I didn't even think of it then. But when I think of it now, I think, wow, that was pretty amazing. You know, <laughs> white and black people together singing a great song. And, and it was happening and I did that. And I'm very proud of that. And I'm, I'm very proud that I was the first pop person to sing at the General Assembly of the UN and I sang a peace song, yeah. and um, and that I I was awarded the honorary ambassador of peace to South Korea, um, and I sang at the DMZ twice, <laughs> the demilitarized zone, you know, and um, those those are the three things that hit me the strongest, you know, that I was a spokesperson for UNICEF when I, you know, believed in everything the UN did, <laughs> but now I'm not so sure. So, um, but again, that gets political and it shouldn't be, but it that wasn't what it was all about. Um, and the last thing is, uh, is there anything that you want people to know about you that they might not know? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, they might not know that I'm still here. <laughs> I would really like them to know that I'm still here. I'm not going away. And that's out there for BMG and Sony. <laughs> so there. What are you working on now? I mean, I know like, we haven't really been able to it's it's impossible we're doing live streams and i don't know if it was my content i did a live stream and then i could they don't let me boost my posts something's weird going on with facebook so i'm doing this live stream show on um may 29th and we're going to do it through zoom okay <laughs> We're going to see how that goes. And it's like, there's a cap of, I don't know, 500. We're probably going to stop it at 450 yeah. people. And I really need to sell tickets, you yeah. know, to, to survive, basically. Yeah. So um, if anything you could do. Concerts. Yeah, I bought tickets to a lot of Zoom events. I think that'll, I think that'll work. So if, if, um, if, yeah, anything I can, if I could have your contact, I could send you yep. the banner and everything. That would be great. Yes, please. Yeah, I'll just, um, I'll send my, oh, wait, you have my phone number. I'll just text you my email address. So, oh, yeah, just text me your email. That'd be great. Yeah. So, yeah, anything that I can do, share, help, whatever people do to get, <laughs> you know, I know it's like, I was told, oh, you don't have, you don't ask people to share, never ask people to share. It's sort of like a okay. Facebook etiquette or something. They, you can have your inner circle do that, but you can't ask people to oh, do that. So. I ask people. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. And I'll share. I'm asking, I'm asking yeah. you, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> I won't tell anyone. It'll just stay between us as per Facebook etiquette. <laughs> okay. 
But um, okay, I'm gonna take a I'm gonna take a picture of us because I usually take pictures with people. Oh, but that's um, yeah. No, but I'm it's kind of it's kind of funny. Like I kind of <laughs> like it. There she is. The box. <laughs> <laughs> we can meet again when you have a brawn. Um, <laughs> yeah. regular zoom photo. okay i'll send okay. you a picture <laughs> okay uh, right. yeah well on the i i plan to put makeup on and everything yeah. on the 29th <laughs> oh. it's like um but no I, i'll probably do something before then <laughs> i mean it's really I, it's just been so strange you know when first i got shut down basically you know i was on my way to of all places seattle that wow. i was about to do a west coast tour wow. and the first date was at the the red door something door and they um you know we were going to do it anyway and people were saying oh you can't that's a ground zero and you can't do that and i said i'm doing it i'm going I'm, there's no way I'm not going. The, the concert people are still doing it. And then I got a call. They've been, they reduced the number of tickets that were allowed to sell the, to 250 or something like that. And I said, that's okay. That's okay. I'm good. We'll still do it. I bought my ticket. I bought a non-refundable ticket. Do you believe I did that? Yeah, no, and I, I know I'm 900 and something dollars. I'm still paying off on my Southwest card. So I paid for the ticket. I went um, and I was going still. But then, then it, they called me and said, no, you can't do it at all. So I swear I was going to go there and sing outside the door. I was so I was so upset. I can't even tell you. I mean, I I usually never do that either. I usually always get a a refundable ticket. The one time I bought a refundable ticket to LA for an interview, she had to reschedule, and I <gasps> the same thing. I was like, and then, well, actually, it was the person I was interviewing was really nice and was like, oh, I'd be happy to refund you the money for your... Oh. Obviously, I'm not going to, like, take her money. So I said no. But meanwhile, I'm eating, uh, yeah. like, out of the garbage. <laughs> I, know. I know. And I'm like, I wish I took it, but I had to act professional. So I was like, no, yeah. Thank yeah, you. it took me forever because I had already sent my product to the venue and everything. And they closed. They closed their door and... I couldn't even get people to send me my box of stuff back, but I finally, they did. But, oh, good. Um, okay. It was, like, it was so sad. I can't even tell. I'm not even sure they're ever going to open again. That was. Um, oh, a lot of places are just closed for good, which seems really unfair. Uh, it's insane. Absolutely. But you know, yeah. Amazon's doing great. So uh, everything's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Are you kidding? This was like <laughs> more than I thought. More than I, I'm. I try to act really cool, but I like thought I was going to throw up. Before. <gasps> um, like genuinely, you know, a big fan. So thank you. Wow. Well, I I was um, I had met a hero. My hero was Kurt Vonnegut. 
and we were going to, it was this, I had a PR person, it was um, Howard Bloom. I don't know if you know that name, but he was a major PR person. And he he set up this party and he said, Kurt Vonnegut's going to be there. And I went, Kurt Vonnegut. And uh, I mean, I had read everything he ever wrote and I was totally smitten with Kurt Vonnegut. And uh, I I couldn't believe I was going to meet him. And I got to the party and, we were introduced and we sat down on a little settee and we, we talked and, but I didn't talk. I blubbered. I was like, I read your book. And it's the best thing I ever got me through high school. And, you know, I, I was just a blithering idiot and I felt so stupid. I mean, I'd never felt more stupid in my life. I didn't pull it together. And, um, you know, and basically was flirting with me. And I, I didn't even get that. I didn't get, you know, I was like, mm. I, I couldn't get past being so impressed, you know, that I, I, I just, I, I look at it. I wrote a letter. I don't know if it ever got to him. I said, I'm really sorry. I was a blithering idiot, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's so not me, but I, I was staged. I was, you know, starstruck. That yeah. was all there is to it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Well, so I'm glad anyway, he was nice to you, even if he was. He used to teach. Uh, I live in Western Mass, and he used to teach at Smith. So I've heard a lot of stories of either like he was generally a pretty nice guy, but he was like very gruff and kind of cranky. So if yeah, he yeah. Talking to you, he was just like not talk to you. <laughs> right, right, right. No, but he was he was uh, he hung on there a little bit. Yeah. But uh, again, I think he was hitting on me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay thank you very much melanie and uh okay. i will text you my email address too right now. okay great great okay. thank you You're i'll welcome. see you later bye That concludes this episode of the Women of Rock Oral History Project podcast featuring Melanie, otherwise known as Melanie Safka. Please buy tickets to her Zoom performance on May 29th. You can do that by going to her Facebook page or checking her out on Instagram. You just pay via PayPal and you get emailed a link for the concert. It's that easy. Let us support our progenitors the women who came before us. They're not dead. They're not relics. Um, And let's celebrate them together, Uh, especially during a pandemic. I imagine it will be a really nice night and a very uplifting performance because that's what Melanie's music uh, does for me. Please check out uh, Women of Rock Oral History Project on all of those social media places. Please like us, uh, Facebook, Twitter, which I'm very bad at. Instagram, I probably use the most. Um, The podcast is on Apple Music, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you could possibly listen to a podcast. So please check it out. Please share it with your friends. Share it on your social media accounts. And if you have an extra dollar or two, we accept donations year-round. And so that is greatly appreciated. This is a self-funded slash 
publicly funded project, um, and I am always in need of donations. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.